The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Um, I am going to start my timer now. Amen. But, man, it's so honored to be here, guys. Uh, we were talking earlier just to be in this room. It really is like family, you know. It's like to be part of the City Rev family just to, you know, come here. It's like, oh, it's like, you know, you're talking to your cousins, in a good sense, like not the cousins you don't claim, but the cousins you actually want to kick it with, you know? Um, and so, man, I, I say that to say, usually if you travel to different spaces or you, you know, preach or whatever, like you usually have a sermon in your back pocket when somebody asks you to preach. You're like, yeah, let me just pull that out. Sure, I've been sitting with this forever, you know? Um, but really, when you take on the, the role of preaching pastorally, not primarily as an itinerant, um, and so you're, 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 you're preaching to people who you know you care about. What you, what you don't do is you don't hip pocket them. You don't just grab something from your back pocket and shoot it out as if, like, you know, they don't matter, which is weird. The whole system of ministry, it's just weird. But all that to say, like, this isn't like a hip pocket sermon that I've preached before or anything like that. This is conversation with Pastor Roby, who is amazing. Um, would God restore, refresh him in his, his time away? Um, what God has been really doing in my heart for the last year is some change. And really me thinking through you guys, and man, like, God, like, what would, you ha- what would you have for them? So this is hot off the presses. First time preaching it. Amen. Amen. Uh, and really, it's an appropriate, I believe, close to the series that you guys have been in in terms of of influencers, uh, I, saw, I saw my little clip in there, which is why I'm wearing what I'm wearing now, so that you don't think I'm just this rough, rugged, unkept guy. Uh, <laughs> took a clip from week one of COVID, amen? Yeah, so I'm preaching to an empty room, all the barbershops are closed, but praise God. Anyway, um, I just need to say that out loud for my own, my own sake. But this idea of influencing, right, to affect necessary and beautiful change um, is what you guys have been walking through and just looking at the various dynamics. I've had some, some powerful communicators, and I just want to slide into the space that they've, they've left us. Uh, but, but to close, saying, as, as we look at this beautiful, necessary work of, of transformation to come alongside people in service, that's influence. It's not to force with power, but to, to join them in service and love for their sake, not your own, to move them forward towards flourishing, to encounter the God that you know, to influence well, to, to close that by, by really locking in on what it looks like to live off the page of your own story. And guy by the name of Guy Wasco, he, he coined that phrase, and I want to honor him for that. He talks about this idea of living off the page of your own story. The scriptures consistently invite us to do that. Uh, Jesus, after he resurrects and he has a conversation with um, Peter, he is restoring Peter because Peter is messed up and Peter is consumed by despair. God loves him enough to go on and seek him in the midst of his sorrow and to pull him towards greater joy. I think we sung about that a little while ago. And, and in this conversation that he's had after he is restoring Peter, Peter still being Peter, he, he's, he's looking at another disciple with Jesus and he turned around and he saw that other disciple following Jesus and, and he was like, yo, like, but what about him? 
because Jesus has just told Peter what's gonna, what's gonna happen, like you're gonna be led where you don't wanna go, like life is gonna be tough for you, He's like, yeah, but what, what about him? And, and, and Jesus is like, don't worry about it, sweetheart. That's a old school meme, 2019, but he, he says, that's not your concern. There's a, there's a work I wanna, I wanna do with him. There's a work I wanna do with you. So don't, don't lock in on, on what I would have for this person over here, but lock in on what I just called you to do. Lock into the way I want to walk with you. Lock into what it looks like to actually live out who you are and not who somebody else is. To live off the page of your own story, to seize the signature of God on your soul. The unique imprint God has, has, has put inside you to seize it, and then to live out of that space, to live off the page of your own story, to not co-opt somebody else's story, illustration, then we'll get to the text. Um, in high school, I used to make music, right? I feel like every high schooler dabbled um, in music. They're dabbling now. But I'm from Houston, Texas, and so there's, there's this genre that's really specific to the South, um, particularly the urban context, it's called chopped and screwed. So essentially you slow down music and then you piecemeal different parts of, of a song. And so I used to, I used to do that. I used to make uh, chopped and screwed music um, mixtapes. Now, some of you are gonna go Google that later. Yeah, be careful, you just, I lie to you, amen. Um, praise God. So I used to, I used to, I used to make mixtapes and then I had, a, I had a unique way in which I made the mixtapes in which I chopped and screwed the songs, and then I would sell them, hustle, right? And so some of y'all mixtapes on a CD, like there was this thing, you would burn a CD, and you would like put, you know, stuff on it, yeah. And so one day I'm walking through the hallway, and then somebody approaches me trying to sell me a mixtape. Now, because I'm a, you know, curator of good music, I'm like, yo, let me, let me, let me see what this mixtape is talking about, let me listen to it, maybe it could, you know, give me some ideas. And so I put it in my Sony Walkman. You remember those Sony Walkmans? Put my headphones on, the ones that go across your ears, throwback. And so I put it on. I'm listening to this track, and I'm like, this, this sounds familiar. I mean, it sounded real familiar. And so I skipped to, the, to a part, and it's, ch -ch we're not make love, love, old school Drew Hill. And, it, and so I'm like, that, that's my move. <laughs> That's my move. Surely, surely I'm mistaken. So I go to another track. Same thing. I'm like, this joker. That's not what I said in my head. I was still a baby Christian. And so like, <laughs> I'm like, yo, fam. I said, my guy, that's my track. This is my mixtape. He's like, uh, awkward, awkward moment. Could have got aggressive, but I was a Christian, all right? And so he walked away, you know, I, obviously I didn't give him any money, but he has stole, he has stole my mixtape. Frustrated the mess out of me. But you know what else I thought about moving forward? I'm like, fam, like, yo, why didn't you just do you? Do you. And, and in my mind, as I think about that and I think about just where we are and what I want for us, man, I do not want us to steal other people's stories and claim them as our own. 
like to, to co-op what God is doing in somebody else's life and neglect what he wants to do in yours. God, God invites us to step into our own story because when we do that, we get to experience him in a unique way. We get to encounter the God who is and the plans he has for our lives. And there are people who suffer when we steal other stories instead of stepping into our own. Because God has made you and me uniquely to experience him and to express the greatness of his name. And so I just want to raise the temperature of that truth, that idea. To live off the page of your own story to seize the signature of God on your soul and to influence from that soil. And so a lot of passages that I think we could look at, the entire scripture speaks to it, but I really want to root us in Ephesians chapter 3. And in Ephesians chapter 3, essentially, we're going to just work through it, and we're going to grab some considerations and some call to actions as it relates to stepping into our own story and influence it from that space. Fair game? And then I'll, I'll close with prayer. Let me take some water out of this great City Rev mug. <laughs> Product placement. Read with me, and then we'll take it bit by bit. Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 1, reads like this. We're going to read 1 through 13. Verse 1 reads like this. For this reason, I, Paul, uh, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... You can underline that, start at, highlight it. Um, yeah, man. Uh, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. Uh, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his own holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that the multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavens. This is according to the eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confidence, confident access through faith in him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my affliction on your behalf, for they are for your glory. There's a lot here. I'm going to frustrate some of us. Let me just go ahead and say that on the front end. Because Ephesians, the entire book, is magnificent. Now, you can say that about the entire Bible. You should. We should, right? But there, there's just certain letters that just pop, man. The majesty of Ephesians is here 
from chapter one to chapter six, there is this, like, this vast, robust, like, romantic way that Paul is speaking. It is just, it's that book. And, it, and you get to chapter three, and chapter three particularly is unfolding the beautiful and necessary idea that diversity is God's design. It is not the idea made by man to sell products. Rather, the multifaceted nature of who God is, his wisdom and greatness, is meant to be expressed through the uniqueness and multifaceted nature of humanity. Difference is a beautiful, good, and necessary thing when it's rooted in the plans of God. We see that here. There's so much here that we're not going to cover. I would invite you to, on your own free time, live in Ephesians this week. May it shape your prayer time. May God enrich you through reading through it. And may you be enriched as you pray through it. But I'm going to frustrate you because we're not going to go through every bit. And there's parts in here that you're like, man, I wish we could spend time there. But there is a reason why we're in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, to me, is just one of the places where you get to see God's plan for people through Paul at work in a unique way. And we're able to grab just some considerations, some ideas, and subsequent calls to actions for what it looks like for us to lean into God's plan for our lives uniquely. And so I'm going to frustrate some of us. I just want to say that on the front end, but hey, don't tune me out. I think God still wants to speak to us. Had you underline it, it, it leads to a few considerations. Verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, the, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, significant and robust. So much we could go into here. I, Paul. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard of Paul. But in your hearing of Paul, you may have been desensitized to who Paul actually is. Have you ever heard of that concept of oil factory fatigue? When you're in an environment for so long, right, that you just get desensitized to the environment that you're in. You don't notice things that should be noticeable. That happens in the city of Miami. You go outside of Miami, you come back to Miami, you're like, I'm in the twilight zone, right? So if you're a Christian for any length of time, there's some things that you just kind of got used to, and they don't hit you the same way, and they should. They should hit all of us the same way. I, Paul, terrorist, murderer of men, right? Persecutor of Christians. Sometimes we talk about, oh, man, I'm feeling persecuted, and it's like, no. Nah. We actually have examples of what persecution looks like. Paul, going out to ensure people would die because they claim to follow Jesus Christ. Life full of blood, life full of mistakes. Yet he was intersected by the grace of God and it changed everything about him. 
it gives a consideration as we, as we think about what it looks like to even just step into our story. The first part of that for me is we step into our stories as they're still unfolding. Now, here's what I mean when I say that. Generationally, everybody is trying to figure out purpose for their life, right? Like, and there's just this great sense of like self-discovery that just kind of pervades every pop movie. If you like Disney, if you're a Marvel person, you know that to be true. From Elsa and Frozen to T'Challa and Black Panther. It's this lean into self-discovery and trying to figure out purpose for your life. But what I have seen is there's a way in which people are preoccupied with self. And that preoccupation with self leads to a whole host of issues. One is you're so preoccupied with self, you're afraid to make a mistake. I'm so preoccupied with myself. I'm so preoccupied with making sure that I understand the purpose for my life. I'm so preoccupied with making sure that I get it right that I'm paralyzed to do anything meaningful. I don't want to make a mistake. All of us have skeletons in our closet. What God invites us to do is to live in the light, to be free, to understand that the mistakes we make don't have to define us, period. And he uses people like Paul to remind us of that simple truth that we shouldn't take a snapshot of anybody's life and say that's the entirety of their life. We all step into our stories as they're still unfolding. If you took a snapshot of Paul's life early on, you would have been like, yo, we need to put that man to death if we want to see the gospel flourish. But his story was still unfolding. Does that make sense? care what mistakes you've made in the past. I don't care what mistakes you're making now. I care about grabbing onto that truth that if there's breath in your lungs, your story is still unfolding. And there's something beautiful God could do in your life if you give your life over to him, which actually leads to the next consideration, which is honestly the primary consideration. The center of our stories actually isn't us. The center of our stories isn't us. The center of our stories is God Almighty. So we understand this concept of something being the center. Whenever you hear this idea of something being central or the center, it communicates focal point and frame of reference, right? So if you go into most living rooms, the center of the living room is a television screen. And it's the focal point. It's what everybody focuses on. But it's not just the focal point, it's the frame of reference. So the furniture in a living room is moved and arranged such around the television screen. Yes? So whether it's your sofa, whether it's your love seat, where it's the pictures on the wall, everything is arranged accordingly so that you can make the most of the TV screen. That's the idea of something being center or central. Focal point and frame of reference. 
We are not the focal point or frame of reference for our own stories. God is. God has never intended us to be the focal point or the frame of reference for our own stories. That is a burden too big to bear because then you can't make any mistakes because you have to be perfect. None of us are that. Furthermore, this, for this reason, is connected not just to what comes later where you get led into this doxology. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father for whom all families are named. But it's connected to chapter 2 and it's connected to chapter 1 where Paul is recounting the story that God has been writing, his purposes and his plans from eternity to now that will lead into the eternity that's coming. And all of it revolves around this phrase, for the praise of his glory, that who God is would be seen and experienced rightly. That's what it means to glorify God. For the praise of his glory, the weight of who he is, all of who he is, that it would be praised, enjoyed, seen, and experienced rightly. That is the story God is writing. And as God is writing that story, Creation bears witness to it. This is Psalm 8. Heaven's declaring his glory. Jesus will go on to say, yo, you can withhold praise if you want, but just so you know, if you do that, the rocks are still going to cry out because all of creation falls in line with that glorious story where God is at the center and his glory is being declared and people are gonna be able to experience it rightly. And in Ephesians chapter one, you get this intersection of this glorious purpose with humans. And this intersection is this idea of adoption where God would grab people, mistakes and all, sin and all, and pull them into a unique family, a unique experience with him where their new title is son or daughter, adoption, which means that the center is not them. The center is God. Don't be so preoccupied with your story and trying to discover it that you neglect the one who is writing it and the one who our story should be rooted in. More considerations coming just from this verse, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. This, this reinforces that idea. My life is not my own. When Paul uses language to describe the way that he relates to God and God relates to him, you get these two concepts that are intertwined. You get this concept of, of slave. Not how we think about slavery, right? But this willing submission to be bound to someone greater. Not man-stealing, but this willing submission to be bound to somebody greater, to define myself in light of the one who rules over me. Prisoner, slave, and son. That I'm not just bound, but I'm birthed anew. God is the center of our stories. 
as such, the primary frame of reference for understanding who we are and what God might want to do through our lives is God himself. Let me apply this and call this to action before I move on. There's this concept of strengthening the order of your identity. Um, Augustine, famous um, theologian of old, talks about how sin is disordered loves. It's love out of order. So it's not necessarily that we only love, that we only love the wrong things or bad things, but we can actually love good things out of order. That's, that's the nature of sin. And the, the primary order of our love should be God, that we will love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that would shape how we love everything else. And so you strengthen the order to everything. That same concept flows into our identity, that there is an order to our identity. If you look at me, there are some primary hats I wear in my life. I'm a pastor. I'm a father of preteens, which is an invitation of prayer for me. This case is confusion. Preteens in Miami. I'm a husband. Just celebrated 13 uh, not too long ago. Um, she's the best of me. Oh, that's clapworthy. Thank you. They say it for applause, but it is clapworthy. What do you think about it out loud? Um, those, are, those are unique identities for me, man. The last uh, year, it's been crazy. I did a funeral for a five-month-old. Never thought I would do that. Um, caskets aren't meant to be that small. Two weeks ago, somebody stepped into that similar space and have had to do funerals for children, elementary children, murdered in Uvalde. That moment, those parents lost their children. And yeah, man, they're gonna be parents forever. But in the here and now, they're not living out of that identity. Does that make sense? Buffalo, maybe you heard about it. Grocery store, predominantly African-American community, shot up. People died. Husbands and wives lost their life. Depending on where you land theologically, that's a conversation maybe for that, you know, podcast. Some people think their marriage is going to end when they die. Others people think it's going to carry on to eternity. And again, it's a very fascinating conversation. But in the here and now, what we know is some people stopped being husbands and wives about a week and a half ago too, yes? Our city has a history of pastors with moral failings, disordered loves. And they've abdicated their right to lead through service, not pastors anymore. There are hats that we wear, aspects of our identity that may cease 
before we get to heaven. But the one aspect that will never change is the primary portion of our identity, and it is the starting point of all things beautiful, true, noble, and good. It is to be a son or a daughter. A son or daughter of God. You're not strong enough to jump out of God's hand. You can't give him enough reasons to stop loving you. God has determined to love you as a son and a daughter Christian. This is the book of Ephesians. Does that make sense? And so it's your primary identity. Son, daughter, and then everything else. And so if we want to live off the page of our story, we actually have to strengthen that order. Lean into what it looks like to be a son. Lean into what it looks like to be a daughter of the Most High and then allow everything else to follow out of that. My wife said something to me um, actually during premarital way back when, before we got married. She said, everything God has called me to be as a wife, he's first and foremost called me to be as a woman after her own heart. And I was like, babe, that is true. And so some of you are husbands, some of you are fathers, some of you are mothers, some of you are business owners. Everything God has called you to be as fill in the blank, he's first and foremost called you to be as a man or a woman after his own heart. Does that make sense? Strengthen the order before you sharpen the craft. Let's move on. Spend a lot of time there. Jump down to verse 2 with me. More considerations. Uh, Assuming that you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. And so Paul's fully aware of who he is. I, Paul, all that entails, prisoner of Christ Jesus, bound to this beautiful Lord and Savior who died in my place and for my sake. It's the gospel, the gospel that I am going to call the mystery hidden for ages, God's plan of redemption and love unfolding in real time to unite a people from all people for his glory. It's the gospel. And as he starts to talk about who he is, he identifies this unique power of God on him. Call it grace. When we think about grace, we often think about grace as unmerited favor, rightly so. This is Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead. All of us. No life in us. Not loving God Rightly, we were dead, but God, God intercepted us and did something. He has made us alive, and the only response to actually receive life is belief. It's faith. It's to say, God, you're doing a work that I can't do for myself. I believe you. I transfer trust. I don't earn any of this. I'm experiencing your favor, your goodness. I am experiencing grace unmerited favor, unearned. That is a necessary understanding of grace. But there's more to grace. Grace isn't just unmerited favor. The grace of God is his divine empowerment. The grace of God is not just unmerited favor. The grace of God is his divine empowerment. Let me prove that. 
not just here, the administration of God's grace that he gave me for purpose. Verse 7, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Verse 8, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints. Again, I was a terrorist. I was out there killing Christians. I was out there like literally destroying families and communities. But the grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Romans 12, 6. According to the grace that was given to us, we have different gifts. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God's grace is not just his unmerited favor. God's grace is his divine power. It's his divine empowerment to fill you with power for a purpose. And there's a general way he does that. You have the Holy Spirit living in you if you have believed in Jesus Christ. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit that lives in you. It's a spirit of power. So there's a general way that we experience the empowerment of God. His grace, Holy Spirit. But that's not necessarily what Paul is emphasizing here. What Paul is emphasizing here is not the general way that he's experiencing the power of God, the grace of God, but the unique way that he's experiencing the grace of God, which is why in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8, he connects the grace given to me to the proclamation of the Gospels for the Gentiles. Now, you got to track with how beautiful this is. He is saying, God, you have uniquely graced me for the Gentiles. There's a distinction between the way that you uniquely grace me and the way you uniquely grace the other apostles. We know this to be true. Just by examining Acts 13 and Acts 14 and Acts 15 and Acts 10, we just have to look at what happened with Peter and his ministry to the Gentiles and Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles, and they are different. God calls Peter to go minister to this Gentile, Cornelius. Peter's like, ah, you ain't going to have me get caught up again, Jesus. There was, a, there was a trepidation there. Galatians chapter 2. Maybe you're familiar with this. Peter's eating with the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Peter's eating with them. These Judaizers come in, legalists have a whole set of rules of what it looks like to earn the love of God, to be, quote, unquote, a maturing Christian. Part of that looks like keeping the old law so you don't eat certain things, pork being one of them, not the story I live, amen. <laughs> they come in to the scene. Peter's like, oh, my God, they, I can't eat with these people anymore. Conscious is weak. He stops eating with the Gentiles because of fear of man. Paul comes in. Peter, you're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. You are living like a non-believer. You are living like a non-believer because you're creating a new standard for people to be accepted by God. You are living like a non-believer because you are treating your brothers and sisters in the faith as if they're less than you. 
You're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. It's a powerful rebuke. But the rebuke reveals, Peter, you're having difficulty engaging with Gentiles. That has never been said of Paul, ever, because God has uniquely graced him. Where other apostles would struggle, Paul steps in and it's natural. That's divine empowerment. Does that make sense? That's the grace of God. That's the consideration. Where has God uniquely graced you? The way we start to discover that, um, Tim Keller has this concept I think is powerful. He says, if you want to discover where God has graced you, how he might want to move through you, look at affinity. What people needs do I resonate with? What am I naturally burdened for? Look at ability. What are my abilities and my deficiencies? What comes natural and easy? And what shouldn't I be doing in Jesus' name? He doesn't add this, but I do. You look at affirmation. What have others affirmed as true and what have others challenged me to consider? And the reason that we have to add affirmation, the affirmation of other people particularly, is because no one discovers themselves by themselves. That is not how God has set this thing up. So you look at Ephesians, you look at Romans 12, you look at 1 Corinthians 12, and what God says is, I have graced all of you. I have graced all of you uniquely, but that when you work together, there's this harmony. There's not uniformity, there's unity with diversity and uniqueness that expresses this harmonious activity, the gospel. So what have others affirmed, the community around me affirmed as true, and what have they challenged me to consider? This speaks to the necessity and the power of healthy community, City Rev. You show me your friends, I will show you your future. That is why being connected to this church is deeply meaningful. Because being here, God could grow you in a unique way where you could discover what he wants to do with your life and grab onto courage to go out and live off the page of your own story. Affinity, ability, affirmation, and the last being opportunity. Where does my community tell me that I'm needed? Where does my community tell me that I'm needed? When I look outside of myself, where do I see actual needs that I could step into with love, service, and the grace of God on my life? Does that make sense? The action that this invites us to take is to seek the grace, to seek the grace of God on your life to actually give intentional thought to where God might have graced you. Where is his divine power on you? You can't explain it and you can't deny it. It's there. Others might not be able to explain it. No Myers-Briggs, no Enneagram, no disc test, no shape test can really explain it, but it can't be denied. And I wasn't a shot at those tests. Praise God. Move towards a close with me. Verse 8, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. 
he is saying, God has not given me this divine empowerment for myself. Your story is not just for you. Man, if we could just take hold of that. I don't exist just for myself. Does that make sense, man? Like, that is, that is such a low way of living. Um, I heard a pastor once say, those who exist for themselves will ultimately end up by themselves when it's all said and done. And it's true, man. It is lonely, it is lowly, and it is a sad existence to see life only through how it affects you. And it's not the gospel. It is not the good news of Jesus Christ. It is not the model that he has left before his people. It is not the purpose of grace. God doesn't give arbitrary grace, right? We live in South Florida, fitness is a thing. You walk around and you see people, they live in a gym, and you're like, why? Like, why do you have that extra muscle in your calf? Who is that for? I was in my gym last week. Somebody hit one of those calves. I was like, you won, you, you, you won. right? Like, it's not, God doesn't just give us arbitrary strength and power and grace so that we can look in the mirror and be like, yeah, look at me. Like, it doesn't, that, that's not what he does. God empowers people for a purpose, and the purpose is his mission. The mission of God is the renewal of all things and the salvation of all people. That is the mission of God, that God would save people, that he would draw them to himself, that he would free them from sin, that he would awaken life in them, that he would bring them on a journey to ever-increasing joy, salvation, a future with him forever, and the renewal of all things. This is why Romans 8 says that creation groans eager for redemption. That when sin came into the world, it didn't just break humanity, it affected creation. And what God is doing is God is on a mission to renew all things, to free every square inch of creation from the galaxy to our globe, from the effects of sin. And he invites people to join him in that work of salvation and renewal to seek people out and join them in the work that God wants to do in their life to move them closer to his heart, to influence them towards knowing God. And to look around us and see where the brokenness of sin, not just in others' lives, but in our society, and to step in and say, how can I help make a better picture of the future that is coming where all things are new? They are as they should because God is in control or as Jesus invites people to pray, it is on earth as it is in heaven. The renewal of all things. And Paul says, I've been graced uniquely for the Gentiles in that mission. But the part that gets me, that I want us to get, is the way he owns that. It's the way he owns that mission. Look at this. He says, so then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. 
I am willing to suffer for the mission of God. I am willing to suffer for your good and your experience of God's good in your life. I am willing to not just inconvenience myself, but to suffer for your sake. And then he has the gall. He has the gall to say, that's glorious. That it's your glory, this this experience and the process that includes my suffering. Y'all, that's good. So don't be discouraged about my afflictions. Don't be discouraged about my pain. It's producing something beautiful in you. That is a level of ownership that is transformative. So the call to action is to own the mission of God. To actually own it. To say the mission of God, the salvation of all people, and the renewal of all things, and my role in it needs me to take tremendous ownership. Homeowners, something happens in your house, who's responsible for it? You are. It's the difference. They tell you about it until you have to pay for a new roof. You're like, oh, my God, that's different. Didn't see that coming. But, you know, hurricane season and all of that, so you got to get prepared. Ownership means it's not somebody else's responsibility. Guys, if you examined your story, if you examined the relationships you were connected to and said, you know what? That's not my pastor's responsibility to see their life transformed. That's not the professional's responsibility to see them experience good. That is my responsibility. So I'm going to pray for them by name. I am going to enter into their story and see how God is at work. I am going to enter into their story and see how God might have uniquely graced them. I am going to enter into their story in a sacrificial way for their good. I am not going to wait for somebody else to do it. We would see transformation, oh my God, in a multiplicative way. Because it wouldn't just be a few people doing everything. It would be the army, which is the church, living out her noble identity as a people of God. Uniquely, because God is doing the work. So I close with this. 2 Timothy 1, 6-7 is something that has been, for me, Um, profound with this concept of stepping into your own story, believing that my story begins with God, not actually me. Believing that there's an order to my identity that I'm supposed to live out of. I'm a son before I'm everything else. Believing that there's a unique way God has graced me. For me, that's what pastoring. I love it. God's called me to it. Can't deny it. Really can't explain it. Just is. Others have affirmed it. And 2 Timothy 1 is for us all. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Translation says rekindle the gift. Others say, Stir 
the gift, stir the fire, this gift is still this idea of charis of grace. In other words, Paul is inviting Timothy. He said, man, there's a unique way that God has graced you, Timothy, to pastor this church in Ephesus. And I want you to devote yourself to the grace of God in your life. Devotion in the Bible, it's not flimsy feelings like R&B music. Most R&B music is all flimsy. It's beautiful, but it's flimsy. She didn't call me back. Now I want to die. That's weird. But I understand. I understand. Heartbreak. Amen. Girl broke up with me way back when. A long time ago. It happened. But that's how we talk about devotion. It's like flimsy, you know. It's situational. It's momentary. Devotion in the Bible isn't like that. Devotion in the Bible is a collision of deep affections. Like you feel something deeply. But it's also a collision not just of deep affections, but meaningful discipline. It is to put into practice some things that will allow you to grow. That's devotion. It is to set your heart and then shape your actions. And so, to be devoted to the grace of God on your life is to actually appreciate that God has graced you in a unique way. Not to covet the way he's graced other people. Not to be convinced of the lie that he loves others more than he loves you because of the way he may be working in them but to look at your life, to stare at your soul, to uncover the signature that God has on it, the grace, and say, thank you, God, for making me this way, Psalm 139-like. And to say, what is the best way to get the most out of this grace? What is my best and highest use? How can I grow in it? Do I need to take classes? What books do I need to read? What opportunities do I need to seek out? How can I grow in this grace practically and consistently so that others can benefit? City Rev, devote yourself to the grace of God on you. If we take Ephesians 3 as true, then we have to take Ephesians 2 as true as well. And Ephesians 2 says that God has created us for good works. We are his workmanship. Poema. People like that. It's poetic. The thing about that is we'll get preoccupied with self and be like, yeah, God has uniquely graced me. Yes, he has. Spent a long time talking about it. But Ephesians was written to a community, not an individual. And so the signature of God isn't just on you individually. The signature of God is on this church collectively. Does that make sense? And so God wants City Rev to live off the page of its own story. To not try and be the other church over there, but to embrace the unique people he's brought here to actually see transformation in our city. It's transformation that looks like what Martin Luther said. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, 
but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty, not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. It's by living your life that may seem ordinary, but you're doing it for the glory of God, stepping into the grace that's on you. Seize it today. Pray with me. Father, would you um, take your words and root them in our hearts? And what was not of you, would you let it fall to a wayside? And would there be a tremendous sense of ownership to not be too preoccupied where we're paralyzed, but to not be neglectful as well. But would we just own the fact that you, you have created us uniquely for a beautiful purpose, which is first and foremost to experience you, to know you, to be in deep, meaningful relationship with you, which entails, which necessitates proclamation and you've graced us to that end. So will we have the courage to discover the way that you've graced us and then to, vote, to devote ourselves to growing in that grace. For your glory and our good, this we pray in your name, Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.